You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. When you've got nothing and you want everything, you've got to get to be the Mac. I mean, being rich and black means something, man. Don't you know that? The Mac, his business is pleasure. He sells the soft stuff. They're going to have to rewrite the Mac and Game book, baby, you know, because I'm going to be the new king. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the big moment we've all been waiting for. The Mac of the Year. Goldie! Goldie! Max Julian is Goldie, and Goldie is the Mac. The Mac, with Richard Pryor, and music by Willie Hutch. The Mac, from Cinerama releasing, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without penalty. Now that you've seen all the rest, make way for the Mac. The biggest and the best. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. John Cross. Hello there. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Mo Porn. You know, I feel spectacular, man. I, I feel up. I feel I feel really up. This week we're looking at the 1973 film from director Michael Campus, The Mac, a classic of the black exploitation genre. The film stars Max Julian as Goldie, a man who is set up and goes to jail only to come out and fulfill his dream of becoming the baddest pimp in town. He's got the mob, the cops, black nationalists, and fellow pimps to contend with. It's a rags to fur and velvet story. The film is now 45 years old. If you haven't gotten a chance to see it, turn off the podcast and watch it. We will still be here. John, when was the first time you saw The Mac, and what did you think? I think the first time I saw The Mac was probably in my early 20s. I was thinking about this earlier. I really kind of got into this era of filmmaking. Everyone always calls it a genre. I always like to clarify and say, no, it's an era. There are many genres within it. I think I got into it sort of uh, just before I went to college, probably in the late 90s, and then uh, watched a whole bunch of the usual ones, the, mainly the kind of the Pam Greer, Fred Williamson, Richard Roundtree, you know, the, the sort of mainstream stuff, and then kind of spread out a little bit and started to watch, you know, the Rudy Ray Moore stuff and Willie Dynamite, and then uh, uh, finally got round to uh, Sweet Sweetbacks, Badass Song, The Mac, some of the some of the others that are that are slightly more. That's I, I guess slightly more serious is the way to define them. I guess or, or slightly more uh, gritty or something, uh, or with slightly more of a message. I think when I first saw it, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, it has a sort of, like I say, kind of a, a gritty drama feel rather than the usual kind of pulpy gangster genre type thing, although it certainly has its moments in that field as well. I have to say it's not one that I've gone back to multiple times, but um, this is probably my third or fourth viewing of it in the last kind of 20 years. But it's it's definitely a well-put-together one and uh, definitely one I would suggest to people getting into the era. How about you, Mo? Started really getting into, uh, like, just voraciously devouring film around my late teens, uh, stumbled upon, 
you know, the Dolomites, uh, P.D. Wheatstraw, all the Rudy Ray Morris stuff uh, towards my late teens and really delved into it into my early 20s. Uh, I kind of went the opposite route than John did, though. I went to the more serious ones first. Like, I'd already seen Dolomite. I'd already seen P.D. Wheatstraw. I'd already seen Human Tornado. You know, like, we we pretty much ran out the uh, the Rudy Ray Moore ones before I started looking other places. But, uh, yeah, then I went right to uh, Sweet Sweet Back, and I watched the Mac. And, uh, honestly, I think this is maybe the third time I've ever watched it. I don't tend to go back to the serious ones very often because – a lot of the, I mean, because, you know, they're not as fun. They're, they're good movies, but they're not as fun. So I'd rather watch Willie Dynamite, which I've seen dozens of times, <laughs> you know, over the decades. Yeah, same, same idea, slightly different. Early 20s, really hitting my stride with, uh, with my film appetite, so to speak. So before you came on with this, Mo, uh, John was asking me, like, well, why this one? Why'd you pick this film? And there's no, necessarily formula for how I pick movies for the projection booth. It wasn't like, you know, oh, I could get tons of interviews for this episode. I don't think that we have one interview on this episode, but this is one movie that I've been wanting to cover for a long time just because it's a favorite of mine and I really enjoy talking about this movie. And it's a strange, strange film because when I think about this movie, I don't think of it in favorable terms. It's not like I sit there and go, oh yeah, The Mac, that was such a fantastic movie. What I tend to do is I think, man, The Mac, oh, it's got that opening theme song and oh, it's got that scene in the pool room. Oh, and it's got the whole, you know, giraffe versus elephant speech. And oh, it's got the, you know, the, the guy with the rat in the trunk and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I just keep thinking of all the different parts to it, the lines, the scenes, and it's less than the sum of its whole. You know, it's it's this strange thing where I remember so many things fondly, but I don't tend to think of the picture as fondly. So it's it's a weird one for me to recommend to people because it's a real downer of a movie. This guy comes to town. He, like I said, he goes from rags to riches, then eventually back down to rags. Nobody's happy at the end of this. You know, mama's dead. All these people are dead. And then he leaves town on the bus again. So it's this really kind of tragic story, but there are so many good parts during the, the, the proceedings. I mean, just God, the, the, opening with the song is so fucking fantastic. I love the Willie Hutch soundtrack to this thing. It's so good. And yeah, it's just like I said, it's a it's a weird one. And I I came to this oh gosh, this is probably only like my fourth or fifth black exploitation film that I watched when I was in high school and we watched the shit out of this movie and there were so many parts that we would actually put on audio cassette and listen to pieces of this like the whole softball game I mean just that whole sequence I've got it all memorized audio wise and different lines and shit so it's just like I was uh, just soaked up this movie, soaked up certain scenes of this movie that watching it again for this episode, I was just smiling so much. You know, every time Carol Speed comes on, she's just fucking fantastic. And so many times, I mean, every time the, uh, the blind man comes on and his, his opening speech about pimping, Oh, it, it, it just, it, it makes my heart go pitter pat. You're going to have a bankroll so big. When you walk down the street, it's going to look like your pockets got the mumps. I ain't never had those kind of mumps. Remember, a pimp is only as good as his product. See? And his product is women. 
Now, you got to go out there and you got to get the best ones you can find. And you got to work them broads like nobody's ever worked them before. And never forget, anybody can control a woman's body. See? But the key is to control a mind. You see, Pippin's big business. And it's been going on since the beginning of time. And it's going to continue straight ahead until somebody up there turns out the lights on this small planet. Can you dig it? Yeah, yeah, I can dig it, yeah. Uh, like you said, it's a lot of moments kind of strung together, but there, there are those moments that like every pimp movie afterwards steals from. I think there was probably no movie stolen from as much as the Mac is. I have to ask, because I'm not sure that I've looked into it, but sort of where does this fall in terms of, like, the other pimp movie? I always think of Superfly as being sort of the one, the iconic one. Uh, but where does this fall sort of in the lineage of the early 70s movies? I tend to put Superfly more in the drug pusher category than the pimp category. I mean, I would say that this is no i just mean it, you know i i kind of separate them out into kind of rather than pimp specifically i just think of it more as sort of a you know a, a crime story a crime for a, a story within it the, the reason why i compare it to superfly is it's got that whole idea of this is all that the white man left us to do kind of thing like if we want to get uh wealthy if we want to have prestige in our neighborhood like this is what we have to do and superfly has that whole speech in it about that in terms of drug pushing and i feel like this makes similar commentary on both drugs but also on pimping that's why i kind of put it together again superfly came out in 1972 so that was right before this i want to say that it went shaft superfly and then the mac i mean of course there were a lot of other films in between there but those were like the three major touchstones for me as far as where we went when it came to Black exploitation, and that was kind of like you know the private eye, the pusher, and then the pimp, which kind of became the 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 three main characters that we would get for a lot of these films. There's also that feeling that I get with the Mac that you don't necessarily get with some of the other films is that, and it's similar with Goodfellas, I guess, because they're both kind of based on true stories, uh, uh, accounts of various different goings on. Like you said earlier, it's sort of, it's not the sum of, do you say it's not the sum of its parts, but like the parts itself are really good. It's a very anecdotal film, it feels like. It doesn't feel like someone strung together the anecdotes particularly well, but like the anecdotes feel real and the, the points that they're trying to make with the anecdotes feel relevant, if that makes sense. Yeah, it wasn't until this last couple viewings of this film like this year coming back and revisiting this that i actually started to pull this apart more in filmmaking terms like i said this was very much a beloved childhood classic for me so i didn't necessarily come to this with those ideas of the handheld camera during the player's ball and the use of being shot like cinema verite or the idea of where we're at in uh, w with act breaks and how things uh, come up and then disappear, how characters are introduced and then reappear in the story. Because really, I knew that there was something off about this movie when I watched it originally, even when I was a kid. 
but I never really could put my finger on it. But watching it again recently, it's like, wow, they really aren't telling me a very linear story. And there are times where we will just like break in the middle of what seems like a sequence and then throw this, I think you said anecdotal uh, story inside of there. And then we're back to the main story. So things like the, the white guy in the bathtub, I was thinking for the longest time that he was the fat man, the character that summons Goldie, near the beginning of the film, and then we don't really get him again. We don't actually get the revelation of the Fat Man character until towards the end of the film, maybe mid to late part of the film. And I was like, oh, well, that's got to be the same guy from, you know, that the the greaseball is talking to Goldie about. But no, it's just some random dude, and it's just kind of randomly thrown in there as a scene to show us what the girls were doing in order to make money for Goldie and also kind of screw over the man and especially screw over the white man. So it's like, oh, okay, this is just there. So I finally seeing it now with fresher eyes, I'm just like, yeah, it's not particularly well made, but there are moments to it that will try to redeem it. Like I said, it feels like one of the – it feels like a story that was told by the real characters that were like, oh, and then we used to rip off rich white guys uh, up on the Upper West Side or whatever, and we would we would rip them off and – take their clothes and take their money and then there was this one night where this drunk guy ran out into the street and we were all laughing at him like you, you it feels like a story that was told to someone and then someone kind of like oh that sounds good let's put in that scene kind of thing you know what i mean like there's uh a few scenes in there that feel like oh this is something that happened so they put it in i don't think that there's necessarily one guy that had all the stuff happen to him that happens to the Mac. But I feel like there are stories in the Mac that are represented that probably did happen or, or are versions of urban legends that happened and, and they kind of strung them together using this guy's life as a, as a kind of loose thing to hang all these other elements on. I mean, you're not wrong. The, uh, the listening to the commentary track on it, there, they do say that there's a lot of it, you know, that basically just was stories told around, you know, a, a bar. Yeah. I forget, I forget what the name of the, of the guy was who they did a lot of the talking to about. Well, the, it was written by Robert Poole. And then a lot of the stories came from Frank Ward and the Ward brothers. There is a lot of that where it's, stories being told basically at a bar that translated into what the, what became the movie. So you're not wrong. Yeah, and I think even like Max Julian brought some stories and Richard Pryor brought stories and maybe even Michael Campus brought stories. So everybody is kind of throwing in and there are like loose connections. Even thinking about that uh, white guy with the bathtub, it's like, well, that kind of introduces us to the one black police officer and shows the conflict between him and the two white police officers. But really, like, he shows up again later on and they shoot him. And so it's not like he's really a developed character at all. It's just like, here, we've got this going on and you might see this character again you might not i mean it's it's very strange the that sequence that i was talking about with the uh and i just call him the grease ball because that's one of goldie's many insults for this guy and he's there and he's just like you know and the fat man wants to see you and it's like that 
stuff happens. I mean, th- that happens right at the beginning of Shaft, where it's just like, oh, this guy wants to see you. And then, you know, oh, well, you tell him to come down here and you talk, talk to me yourself. And then eventually they'll come down. I think this exact same thing happens in Trouble Man as well. It's like Chalky wants to see you. Oh, well, fuck Chalky. He can come down and talk to me himself. It's almost the exact same thing. But with that, Chalky shows up pretty darn fast. And with this, the fat man doesn't show up for like another 45 minutes. So it's just like, oh, yeah, I forgot all about this guy. What a hole did you crawl up out of this time, huh? What you doing here? Slumming. <laughs> I see you haven't changed much. You still look like a little grease ball. You know, someday I'm going to get the chance to rearrange that ugly black face of yours. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, not if I see you first. <laughs> you little ugly dwarf. The fat man wants to see you. Now. Tell the fat man, and I say go play with himself. So. <laughs> he ain't gonna like that. He's gonna get very angry. You ever thought of having plastic surgery done to your face? <laughs> now you got five seconds to get your crummy hand off my coat. Or I'm gonna rip a hole in that greasy face of yours. Listen, I may be a greaseball now, and I may still be a greaseball tomorrow. But tomorrow, you'll still be black. The thing with sort of the black cop and the white cops and the, and also with uh, Goldie's brother, he's it's not like a Black Panther, but it, it's sort of urban renewal group, right? Like a, a, there's an African-American group that are looking to kind of clean up the streets, as it were, uh, with their own kind of philosophy. And he wants to build a, a black America within white America while excluding white America. It's sort of his speech that he does at the beginning of the movie. We must first of all realize we've got to form our own black America within, but without white America. You see this in quite a few movies of the, of the era, even more action orientated stuff like Bucktown and stuff. You see these movies try and put in the commentary, not only commentary on the criminal element, the the drug pushers or the, the pimps or the hookers or whoever, and, and also the crooked policemen, but also try and put in, well, here's some other philosophies and politics that are going on at this time to sort of create a conflict. I mean, there's already conflict, obviously, because Goldie's being hunted by the cops, and he's also being hunted for by, by other people in his turf for getting too big and various other stuff's happening. But in order to kind of I guess show a humanity or to show a slightly positive side or whatever, or to show that there are other people struggling with their own storylines, as it were. You often see these other characters with other philosophies that just like the brother has to compromise his vision, Goldie has to compromise his vision. And it's sort of saying you're shit out of luck, no matter what path you really take. Like you have to struggle, claw, fight, no matter, you know, whether you try and make it big or whether you try and make it good, you know, uh, there's always these things to overcome. And I feel like the black cop is in there to kind of really accentuate the shittiness and the, the negativity of the white cops while also saying, 
it's not all police, it's the crooked police kind of thing. The way that the movie starts, it starts with the gunfight. So we start almost in media res as far as we've got this gunfight going on. We don't necessarily know who's good, who's bad, what's happening. We've got Goldie and Slim, who's the Richard Pryor character on one side. And then we've got the cops on the other side. And eventually Goldie tries to get away uh, after he sends Slim on his way. And the car flips over and the cops come up and... We already have this great inversion uh, image going on here of both Goldie and of the cops, which is a nice way to start this off. And we learned pretty early on that Goldie was set up, that whatever he was about to do was, uh, and I think it was a robbery of some sort, was foiled. And you would think that when he gets out of jail, that that would become his raison d'etre, that he would say, like, I have to find who set me up. But he never really comes back to that. Like, I think maybe we're supposed to figure out that the fat man set him up, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And instead, when he gets out of jail, he gets this idea, I am going to become the best pimp in the world. I'm going to be the meanest man who ever lived. I mean, they're going to be talking about gold like they used to talk about Jesus. Amen. <laughs> I mean, they're they going to have to rewrite the, 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 the Mac and Game book, baby, you know, because I'm going to be the new king. Huh? <laughs> well, I'm going to be so cold-blooded, baby, that they're going to have to change the name of the game. Yeah. You know? And then, and I'm going to get the hottest bitches I can find with a whole boatload of money, and, and then I'm going to get myself a... Some fine-looking vines and a great-looking ride, and then I'm just going to stir it all up. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to say. I'm saying, come and get it. Come and get it. I am. Oh, I am. shit. You don't know nothing about Mac. Everything you need to know, you got to get from me. And I love that he gets a feel for the landscape in that scene at the barbershop. And that is one of my all-time favorite scenes. And then we actually get to see Frank Ward in that scene. And I didn't really realize who Frank Ward was. Again, you know, being a kid, not necessarily knowing the real backstory behind this film until recently. But that's also where we get introduced to Pretty Tony. Pretty Tony, who's played by Dick Anthony Williams, Probably my favorite character in the entire movie. Just so great. And his whole speech about, you know, that Mac the Bear. No, man, all bitches are the same. Just like my hoes, you know. I keep them broke. Wake up one morning with some money that's subject to go crazy, you know. I keep them looking good, pretty and all that, you know, but no dough. When I get a bitch, I got a bitch. Right on. Remember that Mac the Bear? Yeah. Try to steal one of my bitches. Yeah, I called him up on the telephone. I said, hey, Mac, come on over to the pad and let's wrap a taste on it, you know? So when he comes over, I told her to give him a little taste, because she sure as shit wasn't getting none from me. <laughs> See, that nigga wanted the honey. All we want is the money. That is classic and having Goldie there just listening in getting a feel for that and then being able to hear from the blind pimp who I just always called him the godfather of pimps because he just he's there to dispense knowledge at all times and there are times where I'm like is this guy even real because he just seems to show up out of nowhere give Goldie advice tell him that something's happening and then disappear again and his whole thing about 
pimping has been going on since the beginning of time, and it's going to keep going on until somebody turns off the lights on the small planet. We're hitting it out of the park with these speeches right out of the box, and I'm just so happy. And that's what puts Goldie on his path to become the Mac, become the pimp of all pimps. I kind of get a kick out of how quickly he gets into it. You know, like, because he meets up with, um, oh, what is her name? Lulu? Is that, her, that the character? Yeah, he meets up with her at the bar, and she's talking about how everybody wants her, but but now she's an outlaw. She's unaffiliated because she hasn't chosen anybody. And she's, like, begging him, be my pimp, essentially. You know? <laughs> and, and it's just, I don't know, I just, there's something about that that just makes me laugh. That she's like, I've been on my own all this whole time. You know, now for some reason she needs a pimp. But she didn't need a pimp this whole time. But it's gotta be it's gotta be Goldie. I get I I don't know, I just get a kick out of it. I, it just makes me laugh. His rise to so called success is very quick. The the movie almost does it well it does do it in a montage. Uh a really fun montage like when he gets his first bankroll and then, you know, gets his clothes, gets his car. And then he's away, sort of thing. And we see him do a little bit of brief Robin Hooding and, and giving some of his money away to the neighborhood children and things. You like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, feels good, huh? <laughs> hey. I want to be like you, Goldie. Hey, look, I told you about that. Yes. I don't want to ever hear you saying that again. And it goes for the rest of it. You want to be my partner, I don't want to hear you say that. Okay, I mean, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be anything you want to be, but I don't want to ever hear you saying you want to be like me, okay? Okay. Now, let me give you some of this money now, because i got to get out of here. Go, 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 be cool now. Just be cool, baby. You been staying in school, huh? Yeah. Okay. Drop it. Yeah, take it and give it to your sister, yeah? Okay. Isn't that one of them damn pimps? Sure in the hell is. And every month, those kids will get their bread. I don't give a damn. He's still a pimp. And I heard you didn't go to school last week. I was there. You went to school, right? I was there. Okay, okay, okay. Right. Here, for a little man, take that, okay? Take care of your little cousin. Now, be careful walking, man. Okay. Go ahead. I actually really love that scene. I, I love the message in it too, where he's like, he's handing out money to the, you know, to the kids, but he's like, stay in school. Don't be like me. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I like, I like the message of that. I like the fact that it's like pro child, pro education. And yet it's still coming from this pimp. And what's interesting about all these, these movies to some extent, because the external opinion or expectation of a lot of these movies is that they are glorifying from their, you know, movie covers to their posters to what people talk about them, is that they're sort of glorifying the life. When actually, if anyone's ever sat down and watched them like we do, you actually see that it's it's not glorifying at all. In fact, if anything, the most interesting commentary in the film, and this is also the case in any of Scorsese's gangster films or, or sort of any good drama that's sort of dealing with crime, is that actually the interesting commentary in the film is in these little scenes, either with the children or with the two women who walk past and who whose opinions is, yes, he's giving the children money, but it's still pimp money. You know what I mean? Like he shouldn't be coming around here. 
and also with the way this movie ends, it, similarly with Willie Dynamite and others, but with the way this movie ends, it's not saying like, yeah, go out there, kids, and be a pimp, you know. I'm glad you mentioned Willie Dynamite because I was going to bring it up myself. Like in Willie D, you know, he he has to fall before he starts telling kids, no, don't be like me. You know, whereas in this one, he's he's actively pimping and telling the kids not to be like him. That's why I think that there is that subtle commentary, although not as implicit as it is in, or explicit rather, as it is in Superfly, where he actually has a speech about it. But that's where I think that the commentary on, there's there's sort of two things going on. First of all, you know, he's he's out of prison. He's been put in prison for, for, you know, being set up. And he is aware from very early on that his earlier crime days and his earlier drug days were not him, were not what he should be doing and not what he wants to do. And he sort of turns to pimping. Yes, he wants to be the best pimp in town. And yes, he wants to. But he also turns to pimping because it's not killing anyone. Do you know what I mean? It's not jacking anyone up with drugs. It's not knocking over mom and pop shops or anything like that. It's, it's, you know, it's selling sex, you know, but he, you don't really see him. He's not like a violent pimp to his women, particularly. I mean, certainly he, you know, he's not particularly respectful either, <laughs> but he is aware of his own morality. And he's also aware that this is sort of my point with Superfly is, is he's also aware that this is the game that he can play. Like this is where he can get money, get power in his current status you know he doesn't have the ability to go off and become a lawyer a doctor you know the things that he tells the kids to do that game is not available to him for whatever reason whether it is the expectation of his race and place in life or whether it's the way he's treated by cops or whether it's the city he's in whatever it is that game is not available to him and so he tries to do this thing i think with the best of intentions and finds it's it's more the external uh, forces against him that are problematic in in a way is sort of what the movie's saying i think well after he gets out of jail he's given some choices you know he goes around and is seeing what his his options are you know he visits his mama he visits his brother and his brother olinga uh played by Roger E. mosley his brother is very much an avenue that he could go down. Like he could become another black nationalist like Olinga. And Olinga wants John, who is Goldie's real name, and I like that he only refers to him as John. He wants John there. He wants those two to join up together. Let's be a powerhouse. Let's clean up the streets. And Olinga's whole thing is, you know, removing the criminal element, taking the actual pushers off the streets and cleaning up things. And, you know, the cops who are really the forces of evil in this, they are like, oh, can you imagine this guy trying to make the neighborhood safe because they're running the pushers? And it's like, that's one way that Goldie could go, but he doesn't end up doing that. And instead, he becomes this pimp character. And I have to say that pimps are one of the most troublesome characters that you can possibly get because they remind me of like insurance salesmen in a way, because it's like, go with me. You'll be in my stable of girls. You give me, I don't know how much percentage of the tricks that you make. You need to guarantee me X number of dollars a night kind of thing. And then for that, I give you my protection. So it's like this exploitation of the sex workers, which is very, very troublesome. 
one of those, like, are they a necessary evil because the Johns are so violent? Or is it just that, you know, sex work is still not legitimized, those kind of things. But pimps are not something being a pimp is not something that i would hope that anyone would aspire to be because they like insurance salesmen they feel very much like a a leech on society and yet there's this real glorification you know when you say like oh man you're such a pimp you know keep your pimp hands strong all of these kind of things it's just like that's not really too cool man being a pimp what you've touched on which is really interesting is that the movie doesn't delve into his pimping he fights with other pimps more than he fights with johns or more than he has to like come save any of his women or more than he even like we don't even see him taking that like taking money off his women we just know from what he says oh i make about a hundred dollars a day or two thousand or a hundred dollars a day off each of them so about two thousand dollars a week he says at one point but you don't see it like there's what's interesting about it i guess is that because and this is what I feel for the story, is that the film is trying to show Goldie as sort of one path that, yes, isn't right, but it isn't exactly wrong either. Like, it's not condemning him wholeheartedly either. Any more than the movie is saying that the um sort of Black Power, his brother, the Black Power preacher, any more than he is 100% right either. The movie questions both paths in a way, and I. So I just mean, like, at the end of the movie, he uh, Goldie is saying to to the fat man, um, and to other drug pushers in the movie, uh, condemning them for for what they've done to uh, children and 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 what they've done to the neighborhood and everything like that, without really seeing his own culpability. Because I don't think that the movie wants to necessarily ram that down our throats. You know, we don't see him beating up a bunch of people and we don't see him. We just see him driving around in his car in some nice clothes and we see his women occasionally. But, and the only complaint one of the women really has about him is that he's now off with some other woman over her. That's the only time we ever really sort of see any conflict within the stable of women as well. So it's an odd one. I just meant the way the movie represents it rather than my own sort of feelings towards it is really strange though. There is that one moment where you feel like John slash Goldie has changed. And that's when he's out cruising around and the one woman, and I think it's Lulu, comes up to the car and she's just like, this guy beat me up. He took all of my money, et cetera, et cetera. And he starts sounding like Wayne Brady. He's just like, oh, Raquel, what's this? Mr. Franklin's lonely. There's he's, only... Sorry, daddy. What do you mean sorry, what do you mean, sorry daddy? What the hell did you... Is Wayne Brady going to have to choke a bitch? I don't give a shit about what happened to you. Now I want you to get yourself together and get back out there and get me my money. Now I don't care how long it takes you, you get out there and get it! He doesn't care about her at all. And that's the moment in the movie where I'm just like, damn, Goldie's changed, man. Because before that, he does feel like he's really trying to take care of these women, even though he's doing that by teaching them how to steal and there's this whole sequence of them trying to shoplift and like showing them the best way to go about stealing brainwashing them with that whole planetarium sequence which is just fucking crazy and if you really do things correctly and follow my orders i'll even take you with me to the players picnic 
and to the upcoming players' ball. I want you to go home now and get sleep and make yourself beautiful and go do your work. Wow. Okay. This guy, he's serious. And yeah, there is something that's really nice about him never having to get his hands very dirty. And you're right. The only time we really see him lash out is against other pimps or against that guy who I believe they call the gambler who is going to try to set Goldie up again for something else. And he's the guy that he puts in the trunk with all the rats. And that's, you know, one of the one of those scenes in the movie where you're just like, oh shit, that is fucking cold. And then the other biggest conflict is, other than the fat man, is with Pretty Tony towards the end of the movie. And it's just like, wow. You know, things really escalate very quickly there. Wow. I got a huge kick out of um, the, the behind the scenes story with uh, going going to Pretty Tony for a second at the, at the, like the pimp ball or whatever it, whatever it's called. Where he was convinced that he should win. Oh, that was Frank Ward. Oh, was it? That killed me. Yeah, <laughs> right? He was like, I am the pimp of the year. That absolutely killed me. And of course, like you're watching this now, or at least I don't know if you guys were, but I'm watching this, like seeing the barbershop scene or the pool hall scene. I'm thinking of Black Dynamite, you know, and those, those moments that are lifting directly from this. The game is at an all-time level. Man. Never in the history of the game has there been such devastation. Tricks running low, cops pushing harder than ever. And yeah, this little bitch just running wild. Well, I thought we had these poop butt pigs paid off. Yeah. Come to find out, they trapping my hoes every time they hit the track. I'm spending more bail money than I'm hitting tail money. Yeah, yeah. I can dig it, Jack. I can dig it. Yeah. Listen up. Pimpin' been around since the world start turning. And it's gonna keep right on turning, right along with it. Yeah. Until this little planet rotates off its axis as a result of its core overheating and explodes into cosmic dust. Damn. Can you dig it? Seeing the player of the year competition. I'm thinking about Fly Guy coming out and winning it from I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. Like, I'm waiting for Goldie to come out there and be like, I'm going to do some poetry for y'all. Yeah, this movie could have uh, vastly improved with the addition of Captain Kangaroo Pimp. Yeah, which one? Now, you are a big fan of Willie D, so who's got the better outfits? Oh, Willie D. Willie D, are you kidding? Hands down, Willie D. Because Goldie only has the one outfit. Goldie just has that, like tan brown thing with the hat and the cape thing. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he looks good, Willie but Willie's got like 15 costume changes in that movie, and every single one of them gets more and more ridiculous. I, either that, I'm also kind of fond of King George in coffee as well. Uh, the, the, only, the only man whose pants are so tight, he has a camel toe. They call it a moose knuckle. The player's softball game? What the fuck is that? We're just going to throw that in the middle of here and have this amazing horn section come in and start playing this just to show the pimps out having fun. That whole section, again, is rife with quotable lines. There's a lot of great moments the irony is that is that it's becoming apparent to me this movie isn't exactly the most fun to talk about. It was fun to watch. It's it's fun to talk about those moments, but then you start thinking about the overall 
picture and you're like, yeah, you know, so, th- so this begs the question to me then, Mike, since you said this is like, you know, like, uh, like one of your faves from, from your early, you know, your younger days, where would the Mac rank for you in your list of, of black exploitation films? Top five all time breakup list. Top five side ones, track ones. I don't immediately run out and recommend this to people. It's not like one of those like, oh, if you want to see black exploitation films, you have to see the Mac. That's not up there. But at the same time, I, I will admit that Shaft and Superfly are also not at the top of the list. There are other films that I have a lot more fun with that I think are better introductions to, um, you know, and John is completely right. This isn't necessarily a genre. This is more a movement. But there are other films that, capture that spirit a lot more uh, than this film and that are better entrees into it. So things like, you know, Trouble Man or Truck Turner or Black Shampoo or Coffee. Coffee is, is one of the best films, hands down kind of thing. And then you know, Black Belt Jones is amazing. Three the Hard Way is amazing. You know, I t- Friday Foster but yeah, it's not one that I'm just like, you have to run out and see this. I think it's recommended viewing for sure, but it's not one of those, like, it's not a gateway drug to black exploitation by any means, because this movie is a total downer at the end of the day, but there, it's a very important film. And like we were saying, there's a great message to this and it's, it's very conflicted as far as this guy who, people really like but he's very much an anti-hero so where does he fall you know are you pro goldie anti goldie or is it just enough to watch him and watch what he does and just enjoy it for what it is which is where i kind of fall for this i think that's why i tend to also call it an era or as like as, as you said like a movement than i do call it a genre because sort of putting this up against other movies in in the era um doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense it's it this to me plays more realistic this to me plays more authentic is a good word and i also think that the difficulty uh, you know and i made a joke before we started recording yeah it's going to be great three white guys sit around and talk about the mac but in all seriousness i think that there might be a problem talking about it with any uh, level of the same kind of authenticity just because it's not our experience right so it's it's not our um uh, community in that way now I am a big advocate of everyone watching these movies as much as they watched the uh, uh, Spike Lee movement of the early 90s and, you know, and then and then recent films with larger African-American cast. But the reason why it's important that certainly white audiences, but all, all audiences watch something like The Mac, it shows in a way that is understandable, that you can have empathy for, that you can discuss the fact that not only the community's feeling towards, you know, white America and towards the, certainly obviously towards the like incredibly horrible racist policeman, but in general, just sort of the power structure in America and kind of the, the situation at the time and, and the, the available, what was left available for them at the time. I, I think those are very important things to understand because uh, you know, what you see time and time again in the race debate is 
a certain section of the white populace being like, well, look, everyone can go get jobs now and everyone can vote now and everyone can... Like, what's the big complaining about? Like, I don't understand. What is white privilege? Like, a lot of people get defensive about the whole white privilege thing. And I think that the thing that watching films like The Mac, um, where his pimping is not Willie Dynamite levels, it's not Dolomite levels, it's not parody levels, it's not I'm going to get you sucker, you know, it's it's... It feels more authentic, and it also feels more whatever those characters feel like they have to do in order to make their uh, place in that community. And the fact that the fat man, for example, the way what hit home to me was the way he talks to him, the way he talks to Goldie. And even though they are both in the same world, and they're both criminals, and they're both trying to have their own empires, if you took pimping and drugs out of it and you looked at that as a white businessman and a black businessman right take all moral and ethics out of it in terms of the thing the way he talks down to him the way he demands things of him is such a strong commentary on the differences and the belief that white men could still push around black guys even if they're on essentially the same level you know there's so much in the movie i think that that speaks to those kind of debates and those kind of discussions that i think that it's definitely worthwhile i i agree that as a movie it's sort of a hodgepodge of mad <laughs> scenes that are both like anecdotal and then like you say out of nowhere they're in a planetarium with him talking uh brainwashing stuff over the top of a light show or they're at like a pimp gala which just seems completely mad um but also wonderful in its own way the broader conversations i think that a movie like this would do for a diverse audience is where its strength lies um and i feel like where also if one of us was had that experience or certainly had grown up within that community it could speak more authentically to it that's all but you're right though like going back to like how the you know the fat man talks to goldie like you almost you almost expect him to ever end every sentence with the word boy or worse the thing too another good reason to watch this movie is that there are some real standout performances i mean we do not have slouches for actors with this i mean max julian is fantastic roger e mosley is fantastic uh, don gordon you know i talked about don gordon in the zpg episode just a few months ago just talked about him this morning when i was recording an episode about the last movie don gordon as one of the two white cops is fucking amazing in this and you just hate this guy from get-go and he and his partner they are two of the best villains that i've seen on screen in a long time and especially because they're the villains who have the power is it is really really good to see how these two come in and the way that they try to manipulate the situation and ultimately are undone but yeah it's fantastic and then even the guy that played the fat man i mean you don't get better than the uh the face of god from star trek 5 right but and then even you know richard pryor who i've talked about so many times on the show before when richard pryor when they say to richard pryor and goldie slim and goldie just turn around and walk away and they know they're going to get shot in the back by these cops and Richard Pryor's reaction to that and just the way he goes off, it feels like one of the most genuine performances. It feels like he's just letting go of all this anger that he's had for so long and is reaching a place that is completely real. And we're seeing that on screen and it, it gives me shivers. 
the few bits he gets to do are fantastic. He's even great as the like the drunk uh, earlier on in the movie. It's, it's a good scene as well. But you know, if I have any, weirdly enough, if I have any kind of criticism in terms of the characterization, it's about his character. Now I know that he was very difficult to work with on this movie. Would often turn up, you know, high or drunk or you know, and this was sort of prime era for prior to be that way i think having seen something like a grease lightning where he is so good in that film or blue collar is another great example um the fact that you've seen him be able to do those performances and then in this it's either that he doesn't have much to work with or it was that the trouble that was going on behind the scenes because i feel like it was the trouble behind the scenes yeah he kept like they they talk about that he kept coming up uh showing up you know, high on coke or drunk or whatever, and they just kept throwing him off set. Yeah, because I feel like I wanted that character and that relationship with Goldie to be sort of much more, much stronger. And I feel like the movie would almost have been stronger, you know, if if that had been the through line. You know, he's really only in the beginning and then crops up like in two or three scenes towards the end. And I think it's a shame. And I think we know what Pryor can do. uh, And therefore, I think the fact that we only get great glimpses of it here is sad because I think that if you had had him, uh, Goldie and Slim as more of a sort of double act throughout the movie, you know, Slim could have been a really interesting character because I feel like Pryor is playing him as sort of weak and broken and living in, like happily living in Goldie's shadow, but kind of looking up to Goldie and kind of wanting to be a gangster, but not really a gang. Not He's not really a gangster, He's like the kid from the streets who kind of grew up with Goldie and has sort of followed him around kind of thing. It feels like, I mean, I don't know if that's whether I'm getting that wrong, but that's kind of how I have felt about his character, that he has a lot of like emotion and a lot of anguish and a lot of questions about kind of where he is. And I feel like if Pryor had uh, uh, been better behind the scenes of this film, we could have got some of that explored in an interesting way. Yeah, there's that whole thing of uh, Goldie telling him to leave at the very beginning. So you expect that when he comes out of prison, you know, I talked about that sequence where he comes out of prison, visits his mom, visits his brother, you know, goes to the the pool hall, the barbershop, sorry, because I kind of conflate the pool hall and the barbershop, goes there, finds out more, you know, talks to the godfather of all pimps. You would expect that that's where Slim comes back in. You know, it's, it's like, I'm out of prison. You escaped. I took the hit. There should be that relationship there. And then even like Pretty Tony, we always see the guy that Pretty Tony's talking to, uh, the first time we see him. He's always there and he's kind of like Pretty Tony's, you know, number two. And even in that great scene that we get, uh, later on, again, around a pool table where, um, uh, what, what's her name? Uh, China comes in and she wants to switch stables and go over to Goldie's stable. And there's that whole conflict there about $35,000, yada, yada, yada. I mean, again, that's like that relationship, that four way discussion with pretty Tony and his guy and then Goldie and Slim. That's like some of the, best crosstalk that we have in the film and i really enjoy that and i wish we had gotten more of that because yeah i just wish that prior had been more present or more of a presence in the film it does it definitely makes you wonder of how much of the uh, like sort of fractured nature of the movie has to do with prior's addiction and 
and him being constantly kicked off of set. Yeah, and I know it was not an easy set for them. And that was one of the things. I, the behind-the-scenes stuff that they do, the Machinate Easy documentary that goes along with this DVD, and I don't know if this is on Blu-ray yet or not, but definitely I've got the DVD. And they couldn't have shot that at a better time because so many of our principals were still alive. You know, since then, Michael Campus has passed away. Don Gordon has passed away. Dick Anthony Williams has passed away. I'm not sure. I, I think that Max Julian is with us and I it tried like hell to track him down for this episode, but was unable to do so. And then of course, Richard Pryor, he's been gone forever, but the main characters other than Richard Pryor are part of that documentary. And we get to, you know, and we even get the, the voice of the fat man on the audio commentary. So it's just like, okay, things were right for that documentary because if you made it even, I think, Two years later, a lot of the characters, a lot of the actors and participants would be dead. So I'm really glad that they were able to get those voices on camera, get those people on camera talking about the making of this film, because just to hear the struggle between the pimps and the Black Panthers shooting this in Oakland, and again, Michael Campus having that documentary background and is able to bring that kind of verite style to this, it makes this movie stand out from the typical... You know, this is not a Warner Brothers picture. This is not MGM cashing in on the black exploitation films. You know, this is feels very much like an independent film and it wears its grittiness as a mark of pride. It's not nearly as gritty as Sweet Sweetbacks or anything, but I think that's good. I think this needs to be a little bit more polished. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You were saying, Oh, I don't know if it's on Blu-ray and you know, that there, there are some movies out there that are slowly kind of getting the special editions that we're seeing in in other genres and other eras i know that foxy brown and coffee for example and friday foster have had the arrow treatment and some others but in general you know what always frustrates me i think about this era is that since then there's really been no uh, recognition of it uh, even at the boom sort of re-release of a lot of this stuff which happened after say jackie brown when quentin tarantino shone a little bit of a light on it you and me mike we both have a similar opinion on on him and his take on most of this stuff but even then in the early 90s where you had a rise another rise a sort of second rise of african-american filmmaking and commentary on their community at, at the same time as uh, a movie like jackie brown comes out even then this era didn't get really the recognition it deserves. Uh, now we've had this, you know, Black Panther came out and Get Out came out and everyone's sort of talking about, oh, isn't it wonderful, this African-American filmmaking? And you're like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> you clearly don't know any history of movies, but okay. Even now, though, with this even bigger wave that's happening now, and, you know, prior to that, the Tyler Perry, Oprah Winfrey kind of wave that was happening as well, no one's really talking about this era in a way that I feel like they should. And I think that even within, I think, the black filmmaking community, because I think that the outward perception seems to be it's all just pimps and big furry hats and big cars and, you know, 70s music. Like, it's kind of seen as this, people who haven't watched the movies kind of see it as this, like, yeah, yeah, it's also kind of, uh, embarrassing now almost. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I think, again, I think that misses all the great commentary and all the great examples of uh, that community and its creativity and its filmmaking and so on, and the icons that came from it. Richard Roundtree's, the Fred Williamson's, the 
the Jim Browns, the uh, Pam Greers, the uh, Gloria Hendricks. Like without, you know, with, without them, uh, a lot of people will talk about Sidney Poitier completely rightly and Harry Belafonte completely rightly. But without that second lot, you don't, I'm sorry, but you don't have like Samuel L. Jackson and Denzel Washington and people like that. They, they, there's a lineage there that while in, in white, to, just to divide it briefly, but in white Hollywood, quote unquote, white Hollywood, we're always going back to like the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and looking at kind of the lineage of filmmaking. But unfortunately, in the African-American film community, these movies should be praised and saved and re-released and reissued and uh, heralded way more than I think they are in all communities, not just in the black community, but 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 in all filmmaking community. This era is so rich and so creative and so interesting and so such a commentary on not just the times that they were made in, but of America and of society in general, that they don't get their due. And that's a, a, a constant frustration to me. And that's, sorry, that I just had to kind of ramp that and put that out there. <laughs> See, I, I, if my, my personal opinion, I feel like the, the era of political correctness that we're in, people who want to deem themselves as politically correct don't talk about this style of film because it's so politically incorrect you know and they kind of forget that there was social commentary that there were important things being talked about things that especially modern white america could learn quite a bit from by watching some of this you know especially the the grittier the more authentic Maybe not so much like the Willy Dynamites or like the Monkey Hustle, you know, that sort of stuff. But, you know, like you, there's a lot of lessons to learn, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a thing about history repeating itself, history needing, you needing to learn history. And I, I feel like this is a very important era for that one that I think most people are outside of the, the, you know, the film elite for lack of a better term, I guess. They need to learn about, you know. And to be fair, it's probably a criticism that could be leveled against the film community and its uh, its recognition of sort of any exploitation film. Sort of all exploitation films get put in that bracket of, oh, it's just TNA and gore and explosions. It's got nothing to teach us. And actually, nine times out of ten, when you watch, because exploitation movies were often so made by people of conscience and people of intelligence and people of creativity, that so often exploitation films have way more to teach us than your so-called, you know, message movies or whatever. You know, you look at something like a Black Caesar or you look at the the conflict. Like, Black Caesar has no problem showing the power that's available but also showing that even within the African-American community of that time, Black Caesar gets criticized as well. Like, whereas in the white community, still to this day, a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever can become them. And yeah, sure, people criticize them, but ultimately they're like, I'm a billionaire, fuck you. But if you look at something like a Black Caesar or Bucktown has that like exchange of power where when Whitey was in power kind of thing, they could run him out of town and beat him up or kill him or whatever it is. But then... Thalmus Rasulullah gets into power and then there's that whole conflict then about, well, wait a minute, you're just acting exactly the same way they acted and the same kind of thing happens in Black Caesar. It's a fascinating commentary on, and then similarly in the Mac when, when, you know, he gets to a certain status and the fat man says, all right, you're just too big now. We can't allow you to be this big now. 
like you can't be doing this right like you're now above your station and you've got to stop like all those messages and things when people say you know well why don't african americans do more stuff why don't african americans go out and you know become business leaders in industry or whatever it's it's almost because there's this conflict that's been going on for decades about well too how you know if they have too much power then god forbid you know like we've got to try it it and it's fascinating to kind of see those through lines through all the movies. I'm not explaining it very well. I'm a middle class English white guy, and I'm really trying to like get the messages and and understand the empathy. But I'm and I'm trying to be a, a, an ally in that respect. But I'm saying that I get a ton from it, and it, it makes me humble and think more about where my culture has come from as well. Going back to what you're talking about, Mo, I really hope that this isn't a victim of political correctness because I feel that I'm one of the most staunch advocates of political correctness. And one of the things that we always have to remember whenever we're having a conversation like this is putting things into context. You know, 1973 is not 2018 and things were a lot different then. And it's so important for us to look at those differences, you know, to look at the Olinga character and see him, see his, you know, red, black and green constantly coming up in his outfits, the, the hat, the hairstyle, all of these kind of things. There are so many things that are so important to put us into context of this era and say like, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, like you were saying, John, it is really important because we are as close to the moment when it comes to this. The, a lot of these films are turned around within such a, a short period of time that they could be almost not necessarily immediate reactions, but very close to the era reactions to what was going on. So we get to see what 1972 into 73 looked like very close to where it was. And it's not necessarily a document of its time, but it's going to be carrying a lot of weight to that era with this. So, yeah, I totally agree. Talking about the immediacy of it, the irony cannot be lost. The fact that just like in the movie, there's a black power. The brother is sort of a, a black power uh, speaker and, and, and sort of uh, urban renewal kind of guy. And the, uh, Goldie is a pimp. And outside of the movie, you literally had the Black Panthers and the pimps like fighting and picketing and throwing rocks down onto the film set and so on. Like this was immediate, as immediate as, as it gets almost showing the conflict even within the community itself, I think. In those moments where Goldie sits down and talks to Alinga, that's probably something that wasn't necessarily happening outside. And we get to hear their positions on these things, which is, again, something that wasn't necessarily happening. There was a very strong divide between these camps. So to hear Goldie and Alinga's dialogue is very important that we understand where these two characters are coming from. Because, yeah, at the end of the day, Alinga isn't 100% right. Neither is Goldie 100% right. So it's really nice that we have that discussion and get to see the points of view. And art, and by extension, sort of podcasting about art, and I'm not talking necessarily about us, but in general, is, you know, art is one of the places where these conversations can take place. It's not taking place anymore in the news. It just isn't. There just isn't these conversations happening. Everything is boiled down to its most simplistic form. And I think that's the other reason. Yes, they're exploitative, and so therefore people don't want to necessarily go near them. But also they're difficult. They're not easy films. They're not films that just go, hey, here's the message. To some extent, everyone can watch Get Out, right? And go, oh, I totally get it. Cause it, and it's no, con uh, no, uh, comment on Get Out. It's a fine movie, but everyone can watch it and understand it. 
and just be like, oh yeah, there's the message. It's, it's harder to have a conversation that doesn't just take into account, uh, racism and one community against another, but looks at the community both within and without itself and, and, and have harder conversations, you know, between crime, between non-crime, between young, between old, between families. You know, there's various things going on in here that, that is, as interesting, if not more so than something like Goodfellas uh, or, or any of the Italian crime fat films, you know? If they ever put this out on Blu-ray, one special feature that I hope that they have is the 1983 version of this film. Because apparently in 1983, when it was re-released, probably to VHS, and I haven't been able to find a copy of this at all, but it was too expensive to get the music rights from Willie Hutch at that point because it was a Motown release. So they actually had Alan Silvestri rescore the film. And so there's a second soundtrack years and years ago. I was in New York City and I was doing, you know, record shopping, which was kind of my, my thing and was in this little shop and I'm flipping through the records and I find this soundtrack for the Mac and it's not by Willie Hutch. And I'm just like, what the hell is this thing? And I'm like, is this like, orchestration music because sometimes you know you get the one with the hits and then you get the one with like the orchestra music or whatever so i'm like well i wonder what this is and then finally you know put it down on the platter and i'm just like well this is nothing i've ever heard before but here's max julian on the cover here's richard Pryor on the cover it says music from the mac and i'm just like what the fuck is this and it takes all these years later for the internet to kind of catch up with this stuff and for me to learn oh this was a re-release with this music on there instead it was kind of you know sylvester was pre back to the future and post I can't remember what, what the show was that he worked on a lot when in the 1970s, maybe Chips or something. So it was like in that era where he was still... Such a weird choice. Such a weird choice to score a, a movie like this. Yeah, mad. Well, then they also got Eugene Daniels, who was a, a big funk guy at the time. So he does vocals on two tracks. And then, yeah, the rest of it is instrumental stuff. And I'm just like, what the fuck? But yeah, I want to see that version, too. Like, put that on the Blu-ray as an extra, because that's an artifact that I can't find any place. And I want to see that just to see how it might have played at some point, you know, just just for shits and giggles. Conversely, there's that thing. I forget if it's Slaughter or Slaughter's big ripoff, but there's a thing with the James Brown soundtrack. The Slaughter film with the James Brown soundtrack is like rare as all get out. Like you cannot find it at all. Um, I think all the new DVD and Blu-ray releases, if there's even a Blu-ray release of Slaughter, um, but the DVD certainly has the, the redone soundtrack because they couldn't afford James Brown soundtrack anymore. That's the opposite. That's where the original soundtrack is not available anywhere, but the, the redone soundtrack is because they couldn't pay the rights to Brown, James Brown's music. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Uh, yes, Lee, how are you? Senator Carroll, just fine, thank you. Welcome to our city. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. There is no evidence of a conspiracy. These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. We're in the business of reporting the news, not creating it. You've been asking questions about me and things you know nothing about. What I know is I need a good alias and I need a good idea. 
Who are you? You know, there for a moment, I thought you were a man. My life is in danger just being here. And whoever's behind this is in the business of recruiting assassins. I think I got some of their entrance exams. Congratulations, Richard. You had some very interesting scores on the first series of tests for Parallax. You know, your tests suggest that you have remarkable talents. In a risk situation, I believe you'll go right down the line. quality to get you in trouble is what makes you potentially invaluable. We're prepared to offer you the most lucrative and rewarding work of your life. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the Parallax View. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, John and Mo. Mo, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, I'm still doing the uh, No Budget Nightmares thing. Uh, you know, you can find all the newest episodes at DorkShelf.com and any archived old episodes at NoBudgetPodcast.com. And uh, just recently started a uh, new podcast called Alt.Nerd.Obsessive, uh, which is more about fandoms and and you know nerdy obsessions and that sort of thing and uh oddly enough you can find that show over at aftermoviediner.com and john how about you how are things with uh, the after movie diner network now yeah well uh we've had mo's shows on there before um uh so mo is sort of a subsidiary of the after movie diner at this point it's only it's only it was when no budget nightmare there was a whole thing where they were you were looking for a new home and i did pitch to doug i did say hey bring it over to the after movie diner drunk on vhs and and uh, uh um, dead end driving were both on there and he was like no thanks <laughs> He was like, no, I'm going to go with someone who actually has an audience. So I was like, all right, thanks. Um, so <laughs> uh, anyway, yes, aftermoviediner.com. Uh, that's where you can find all my stuff, aftermoviediner.com. And if you type in after movie and diner into Google, all of the things that come up is me. But Twitter, I'm aftermoviediner, facebook.com forward slash aftermoviediner. Uh, and uh, I, we are entering in August. Uh, I don't know when this episode is going to be released. Um, but we are entering in August our Hammer Month. We're doing a Hammer Horror Month. The Quad Cinema here in New York City did um, two series of Hammer films. First, their early stuff, and then recently they've been doing their later 70s, weirder and wilder stuff. And we recorded two podcasts on early films, um, The Abominable Snowman and... Uh, one of the others. I think The Evil of Frankenstein. And then we are doing... Um, Two later ones. Uh, we're doing Vampire Circus and uh, Dracula one. Uh, the Scars of Dracula um, that recently screened. So we will have four back-to-back Hammer podcasts in August, uh, along with uh, written reviews by the bloke down the pub who does great, funny reviews of Hammer horror films. He's up to like 40-something. 
uh, reviews at this point. Um, so yeah, check that out. Check Hamahara out in August on AfterMovieDiner.com. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.